0: A few years back, my wife, Kristen, and I were leading a trip, a missions trip to Honduras. And we were taking a team of people. Everyone was really excited about this trip. And we had done a lot of planning, a lot of preparation, both on our end and uh, the, the group that we were meeting down in Honduras. And... And as we usually do in these kind of meetings or in these kind of trips, we had multiple meetings kind of leading up to the trip where we gave information about the trip. We let people know what was going on, different deadlines, different dates they needed to know. And we had three or four meetings like this as we kind of led into this trip to Honduras. And, and there was about 15 of us going, but there was this one guy who I just noticed he was not showing up for the meetings. He was not there when we would get together as a team, and and quite honestly, for the first meeting, I I didn't really think much of it. I I didn't really think uh, much of him not showing up, because those first meetings oftentimes are kind of introductory, just letting people know the dates, letting people know what's going on, and so I didn't think too much of it when he didn't show up, but then we had another meeting, and he wasn't there, and we had another meeting, and he wasn't there, and then we had our final meeting, and he wasn't there. But he had paid for the trip. He had said he was going on the trip. And so I gave him a call to check in on him. I had kind of checked in in different meetings and he had kind of had a different excuse why he wasn't able to be there, why he wasn't able to come. And, and finally, he, he let me know after this fourth meeting, he just said, listen, I'm definitely going on the trip. I've paid for the trip. I'm going to be on the trip, but I don't really need to come to those meetings. Those meetings are for people who don't travel a lot. Those meetings are for people who kind of need their hand held through the system. And so I, I didn't need to come to those meetings, but I will be there. I'll see you at the airport. I'll be there. And so I was like, okay, th- that sounds great. So we show up to the airport the morning that we're supposed to leave for Honduras and we're all in line and I love this guy. He's a great guy, but he has a bit of a strong personality and that is a massive understatement. He has a very strong personality and and there's different dynamics at stake when you're kind of putting a team together. And so those meetings leading up to the trip, I mean, yes, they are informational. Yes, you do want to make sure everybody's on the same page, but you're also beginning to form the bond of the team that's going to be doing the work together. And this guy was not present for that process. And so he didn't really mesh immediately with the team. And, and quite honestly, it, it was even a little more exaggerated by the fact that two of this guy's employees were on the trip. And they were coming on the trip as well. And quite honestly, this guy had a bit of a tough time slipping out of boss mode. And so these two, just in line at the airport, you could see on their faces that what they felt they had all of a sudden signed up for was a work trip that was not supposed to be a work trip. And so he's in line. By the way, it's 4 a.m. And he's in line. And he's just at like an 11 out of 10. He is as on as you can be. He is nicknaming different people on the trip and telling them what he's going to call them for the entire trip and, and, and how he's going to refer to them. He's letting us know who's going to be who and all this kind of stuff. And so honestly, I'm sitting there as the leader of this trip. And I'm like, I think this trip is ruined. I think, I think we haven't even left yet. And I think this trip is over. And so we get up. We're checking in. We're all kind of doing the thing, checking in. And I see him go up to the check-in counter. I see him hand them his passport. I see them having a conversation with him. I see them pointing to something on his passport. And I see him walk away from the line. And he kind of stands over to the side. And when I come back over to his side, he says, I'm not going on the trip. And I said, what do you mean you're not going on the trip? And he said, well, apparently Honduras has this strange rule that you have to have six months left on your passport to be able to travel there. And I only have four months left. To which I said... Oh, yes, we went over this in the meetings. (laughs) And so he had to call his wife at 4 a.m. to come pick him up from the airport. And he did not get to go on the trip that he had planned to go on. And I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, maybe not quite so dramatically, but not going on a trip that you've planned to go on is a really weird feeling. Like you've packed for it, you've prepared for it, you're ready for it. And then for whatever reason, now you're not going. And I don't know about you, but for me, it's even more strong than just this idea of like the physical preparation. When I am mentally prepared to go somewhere, I have a hard time unpreparing to go. Like if I think I'm going to go somewhere, often I am there a few days before I actually leave. Like when we're about to go on vacation, if we're leaving Sunday after church, I'm having a real hard time on Friday being present where I am because I'm ready to go on the trip. And now he's not going on the trip. And this is an odd and a weird feeling that just leaves you feeling as though there's something missing. You had planned, you had prepared, you were ready, and now you're not going. And we've kind of followed the story of the children of Israel so far through the wilderness. They've been traveling through the wilderness. They've been preparing. God has been doing everything he can to make them ready. And the sad reality of this story is that not everyone makes it into the promised land. Not everyone goes where God had called them to actually go. There are circumstances that keep some people out of the promised land and some people that get to go into the promised land. And I think sometimes when we see things like this, we can equate that to our our own life. Like sometimes we think that God is doing something in our lives, but then it doesn't end up and actually happen. And so we assume that God did not show up for us. We assume that God does not do what he said he will do. But see, just like this friend of mine who was supposed to be on the trip, the fact that he did not go on the trip, it wasn't about the fact that he did not have the opportunity. He did have the opportunity. It wasn't about him not having the resources. He did have the resources. The only reason he didn't end up on the trip was that he did not show up where he needed to show up in order to get where he needed to go. And this is what happens in a few different groups of the children of Israel with those who don't get to go into the promised land. See, I think sometimes what we sit around and we wonder why God's not showing up, but if you're living a life where it seems as though God does not consistently show up in your life, I think sometimes you need to reevaluate whether or not you are in fact the one that is not showing up because God's promises are good. What God has said is good. Now, it, it may take longer. It may look different. But the reality is, if you live in a reality where you feel like God never shows up for you, there is a good chance that you are not showing up where you need to show up. There are some things that are keeping you, as it were, from your promised land. I, I think that we, we underestimate the choices that we make once God gives us a call on our life, once God points us in the right direction. And it even shows up in our language. So often we talk about the future. We talk about the future as if there is a future that is coming regardless of what we do. That the future is on its way to us when in reality there is a future that is waiting on us depending on the choices that we make. And that future may look very different based on the choices that you make, the steps that you choose to take or not take. The future will look very different for you than it will for someone who lives in a different country. But your own future could look very different for you depending on the steps that you decide to take. And there are some people in this story of the children of Israel who, who tragically do not make it into the promised land. And I want to look at what are those things that keep them from the promised land. But, but more importantly, what are the things that get us into the promised land? Because what we're going to get into in, the mom, in a moment is this idea that though some did not make it into the promised land, many did make it into the promised land. And that is a problem if you're going to try to blame God for the fact that you didn't make it. It's a problem when other people make it. Like when when there's something in your life that you say is impossible, that cannot be done, how frustrating is it when you see someone else do it? How frustrating is it when you see someone else walk into something that you said or thought was impossible? See, when there is an exception, it's a reminder that in fact, God does keep his promises the fact that some people made it into the promised land is a reminder that God keeps his promises if we will continue to take the steps that God has called us to take. And the truth is so often our humanity gets in the way of what God wants to do in our lives. I have had an unbelievable amount of conversations about Will Smith this week. Like, literally, I think it's come up every single day that I've talked about Will Smith. It's partially my fault. It's partially just because it's everywhere in culture, but I was fascinated by this situation on a bunch of levels. I thought that yesterday was going to be the first day that I did not talk about Will Smith, and then I went and got a haircut, and immediately, the guy cutting my hair starts talking about entertainment stuff, and he starts talking about, like, different shows he's watching, and I'm like, I'm positive he's going to mention Will Smith, and sure enough, like, two minutes in, he's like, and Will Smith's out here slapping folks, and, and if... Just really quickly, if you're not familiar with what happened with Will Smith, uh, Chris Rock was presenting an award at the Oscars on last Sunday night, and he was presenting the award and he made a joke about Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, very short hair related to a health condition. Chris Rock makes a joke about the short hair, tries to move on in like two seconds. Will Smith is up on the stage, slaps Chris Rock in the face really hard and goes back and sits down. Just an amazing moment. And this was fascinating to me because growing up, I was like enamored by the Oscars. I loved the entertainment industry. I I went through different phases of like, I want to be a director. I want to be a producer. I want to be an actor. I want to be a comedian. I went through all these different phases where I, I just loved the entertainment industry. And the Oscars were the one time a year that my parents let me miss church. My dad was a pastor. We had Sunday night service. We never missed service. To this day, I cannot believe they let me miss it for this. The only reason that they really ever let me miss church for the Oscars was that it always is on the last weekend of March. And that is my birthday weekend. And so my mom would kind of convince my father that as a part of my birthday, I could stay home and watch the Oscars. I stayed home by myself from about age 12 on and watched the Oscars. It was an introvert's dream. And I think, that I, really, I think that I really liked it in those days because like, in those days, it wasn't that long ago, but I really liked it because back then, uh, Billy Crystal was like the, the, the standing host of the Oscar and it was like really like old school. Like they opened with a song and dance number and it was like, they joked on people and all that kind of stuff. And so I remember all these things after the Oscars that are the thing that actually everybody is talking about the next day. Nobody's talking about the winners. Everybody's talking about this one thing that happened. And, and it's amazing how like we, we see as like Jennifer Lawrence goes up the stairs and she falls on her dress and we think that's funny. And then John Travolta like, like massively mispronounced Adina Menzel's name a few years ago and that was funny. Like three years ago, they announced the completely wrong winner for Best Picture. That was hilarious. And I think there's something about these little gaffes that happen that we like because it reminds us that these people that we put up on a pedestal that are, are famous and they're rich and they're influential, but in those moments, we remember that they are actually just human just like us. And so it's funny when Jennifer Lawrence trips on her dress, and it's funny when John Travolta mispronounces a name, and it's funny when they get the wrong envelope. But then when somebody walks up on stage and slaps somebody in the face, I think what's uncomfortable about it is that same reality that they are human just like us. That... that That just because we've never done that on a massive stage doesn't mean that we haven't done something that that reminds us of in our own life. And I think that there's this this moment in Scripture that I was actually reminded of when all of that took place this week. Because it's amazing what happens when we allow our frustration to stay bottled up within us. It's amazing what happens when we take on the role of needing to do things in our life that God was meant to do in our lives. We actually have go to the book of Numbers chapter 20. The book of Exodus covers a lot of the story of Exodus, but a lot of the loose ends are tied up in the book of Numbers. And in Numbers Chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. So just kind of realize for a moment that, that Moses has just experienced the loss of a loved one. Moses has experienced the loss of his sister who has been with them through this entire journey. And it says, Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. So, so Moses has experienced loss, and now he experienced lack because they have no water, and now he experiences opposition because those that he is leading find him responsible for the fact that they have no water. And it says they quarreled at Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went, from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink." Now, there's a story that almost exactly parallels this story in the book of Exodus that that took place many years before where they're literally out of water. And this is a running theme throughout the book of Exodus, but they're out of water. And in that instance, God tells Moses to go to the rock and strike it with his staff. He says, strike the rock with your staff and water will come forth from the rock. But, But now they're at a new place, but they're experiencing the same exact problem. And have you ever had a recurring problem in your life? There is nothing that is more frustrating than a recurring problem, something that you think you are done with, but in fact you are not done with and It seems like a small thing. It seems like a small thing in fact, Moses has seen God provide water for them in many different ways throughout the wilderness. We, we looked at a few weeks ago when there was bitter water that God made sweet. There is this instance where God tells Moses to strike the wa- rock and water comes from the rock and Now here we are without water again, the difference in this situation that Moses is in now is that the people he is dealing with are actually different people. When we read through the book of Exodus and we read through the book of Numbers, we think about the children of Israel as one group that traveled this whole time. But the truth is that an entire generation of them died in the wilderness because of their grumbling. And these people that are now grumbling at Moses over this lack of water, these are their children. And so their children inherited their grumbling. Their children inherited their viewpoint on life. Their their children inherited their worldview. And I think it's a good reminder for, for those of us who are parents that our children are watching the way we respond to the circumstances of our lives. That our children are looking at the ways that we respond, at the things that we do. When it seems like God isn't going to come through, what do we turn to? Because in this moment, these children are experiencing what their parents had experienced. And the, the, the whole story is that their parents had experienced miraculous breakthrough in all the other opportunities where they needed water. And yet what their children turn to is the same thing that they turn to. Their children turn to grumbling. And Moses is now dealing with this entirely new generation of grumblers and complainers. And it's on the heels of the death of his loved one. Have you ever been in one of those situations where a a very, a small frustration that keeps recurring in your life and it never really turns out to be an actual problem. They never actually thirst to death. It never actually turns out to be a real problem. But then, then you experience this problem in the midst of other problems. Like, 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 you experience this issue in the midst of much greater issues, and, and, and that issue wouldn't normally cause you to snap. That issue wouldn't normally cause you to lose it. But, but among the other issues you're dealing with, suddenly, that's just too much. And this is the moment that Moses is in, and he gets very clear instructions from God. God says, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather at the assembly, speak to that rock, and before their eyes, water will pour out of it. See, last time God said, Go to the rock and, and strike the rock. This time He says, Go to the rock and speak to the rock. And Moses starts out on the right path. He starts out doing the right thing. In fact, we see this pattern that we've seen all throughout Exodus where people grumble to Moses and then, God, and then Moses goes to God and then God comes through for the people. But, but this time, the people grumble to Moses and Moses goes to God, but then he doesn't just go to God and he doesn't just follow through with what God tells him to do. God tells him to speak to the rock And Moses instead speaks to the people. Moses speaks to the people. It says, Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arms and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. Moses, in this moment of frustration, instead of doing what God says, instead of speaking to the rock like God says, Moses decides he has a few words for the people first, Moses has a few things he would like to get off his chest before he follows through with what God says, and he says, listen, you rebels, he is done with the children of Israel, he has dealt with this now for generations, and he is done with their grumbling, he is done with their complaining, and he says, must I bring water for you out of this rock And see, so often when our frustration gets out of line, it's because we've taken on a responsibility that was never ours in the first place. See, Moses stands before these children of Israel and he says, must I bring you water from this rock? Like, must I really do again what we've had to do so many times? And then instead of speaking to the rock as God asked him to, he strikes the rock twice in his frustration because he brought the responsibility on to himself. See, when you're, when you're frustrated, you, you begin to question what God's asked you to do. You begin to look at your situation and say, well, clearly you're not going to do it, so, so I must be the one that has to do it. Clearly I have to take on the responsibility to see this through. But, but beyond even taking on the responsibility in, in his frustration, Moses returns to what he's always done. He returns to what worked for him before. And how often when we're in moments of frustration, moments where we aren't thinking clearly, do we rather than actually seeking God's counsel and rather than actually walking out what God says, we just turn to whatever worked last time we were in this situation. And that's what Moses is doing in this moment. In this moment, God told him to speak to the rock, but instead he strikes the rock with his staff. And it says in verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me, enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. You will not bring this community into the land I have given them. Because of his frustration, because of his choice to strike when God told him to speak, Moses is among those who does not make it into the promised land. It's in many ways a tragic ending to his story that in his frustration, in his anger, he took on the responsibility of what God had called him to do. He took on the weight rather than just stepping out in obedience in what God told him to do. And it can seem quite honestly, like when I was a kid, I don't think they did a very good job of explaining this story. And I thought God seemed pretty petty in this moment, if I'm being really honest. Like he's put up with a lot from Moses He's put up with a lot from the children of Israel and then Moses strikes the rock and now he doesn't get to go into the promised land. Why doesn't he get to go into the promised land? And the answer is revealed later in the book of 1 Corinthians. See, what we find out all throughout the book of Exodus is that what God was trying to do as he was leading the children of Israel through the desert is he was trying to give them a picture of what it was going to look like when Christ ultimately came and Christ ultimately redeemed everyone from their sin and bondage. He was giving us a story to reach back to, to say the way God released the children of Israel, Jesus can now do for us. And so throughout the book of Exodus, everything has some sort of tie to the story of Jesus. Everything has some sort of symbolism to the story of Jesus. And in The book of 1 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 10, Paul says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. See, as God was telling this story through the children of Israel of how he would ultimately redeem all people, how he would ultimately make a way for all people, this rock in the first instance that Moses was asked to strike, where Moses was asked to strike the rock in the first instance, that rock was meant to represent Jesus Christ and the striking was meant to represent his crucifixion and that life would flow from Christ for all. This is why when Jesus met the woman at the well, he said, ask me for a drink. See, in this moment should have been symbolism for that moment where, where, where God is essentially saying, listen, now that I have been stricken, all you have to do now is ask. That the water has already been made available because I have already been struck. So all you have to do is ask. So when Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock, it was as though Moses was saying every time we mess up, every time we have a need, it's as though Christ has to make his sacrifice again that Christ has to be struck again. And I think there's many of us to this day that we still live in this reality, we still live in this world where we believe that God's sacrifice for us was not enough. We may not say that we're living in that reality, but we live like we're in that reality. We live as though we have to keep striking the rock each and every time we mess up. We live as though each and every time we have a need, we have to strike the rock. But what God was trying to say to Moses is that the rock has already been stricken. It does not have to happen again. Once was enough. Once was enough, but Moses chose to strike the rock because it was really more comfortable than speaking to the rock. If you remember, it's, it's interesting in this moment that God asks Moses to do something that Moses pushes back on every time God asks him to do it. Every time God asks Moses to speak, Moses thinks his words are not enough. Every time God asks Moses to speak, Moses tries to find another way. And I wonder, in our own lives, what is it that God asks us to do that when he asks us, we assume we have to find another way? We assume that what he's saying can't be enough. What he's already done can't be enough. So in our own frustration, we keep striking the rock, hoping for the same outcome when God is saying, all you have to do is speak because once was enough. Once was enough. See, Moses did not make it into the promised land because of his frustration and his misunderstanding of what God had already done for him. But th- there's another group of people that, that didn't make it into the promised land, and this, this was the, the fathers and the mothers of these complainers in this story. These are are the ones who, who died in the wilderness, and they died in the wilderness because of their unbelief, and they died in the in the wilderness because they did not believe that God would actually take them into the promised land. They kept trying to go back to Egypt. And there's this moment in scripture where where it's time for them to take the promised land. It's time for them to take steps into the land of Canaan. But instead of taking the promised land, they decide to send in a test. They decide to send in these 10, 12 spies that will go into the promised land and kind of check out the land before they get into the land. And these 12 spies, they go into the land, and in fact, they find that the land is exactly as God said it would be. The Bible says that they pick fruit, that they pick grapes the size of watermelons, that there is plenty of food, plenty of honey, plenty of fruit for them. And yet this is what it says in Numbers chapter 13, verses 26 through 31. This is the report that they bring back. It says, They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But... The people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak, that means giants, there. The Amalekites live there in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we cannot attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored detours those living, destroys those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked The same to them. Notice what happens here is that 12 of these spies come back with this terrible report, but two, Caleb and Joshua, have a report that is good that they should take this land. But there is no dispute about the goodness of the land. There is no dispute that the place is the place God said it would be. The dispute is over what they would have to get through to obtain the land and whether or not they can take that place. And there was a difference between what these 10 spies saw and what Caleb and Joshua saw. And I think it's interesting that out of these 12 spies, we, we don't know the names of the 10 spies who did not think they could take the land. And I think it's a little bit telling. Like if you want to be remembered, be the kind of person who tells people they can do something. If you want to be remembered, be the kind of person who tells your family and your friends and the people in your sphere of influence that you can do something because nobody wants to remember someone who told them they can't do something. But we don't know these 10 spies' names. We just know that they saw something different than Caleb and Joshua. And if you see that, it was all about things that they saw. They saw the people. They saw the giants. They saw the walls. And they saw a land they said destroyed the people who were in it. They were focusing more on what they saw than what God said. And what's interesting at this point is that God had brought them out of bondage. God had brought them out of slavery. God had brought them out of Egypt. But God's intention was never just to bring them out of slavery. It was to bring them into life. And God's intention for your life and for my life is never just to bring us out of the bondage of sin, is never just to bring us out of the bondage of addiction or the patterns that we live in. It is also to bring us into life. I think the problem is that so often we settle for God bringing us out. And it's weird to even say settle for God bringing us out, because if you just look at the landscape of your life, it's easy to settle in that because God bringing you out is enough. God bringing you out of your sin, out of your addiction, out of your shame, out of your bad patterns of living, that is enough. But it is not the fullness of God's intention. God always intended not just to bring us out, but also to bring us in. But I wonder how many of us have built our lives around this in-between space where God has brought us out, but we have yet to actually enter into all that he has for us. See, because within this story, in this moment, when they hear that the land is going to be harder than they expected to take, there is a group of them that says, let us raise up a leader and go back to Egypt. Let us raise up a leader and go back to where we came from. See, I think sometimes what we don't realize is that the weight of freedom can feel heavier than the weight of slavery. The weight of freedom can feel heavier than the weight of bondage. And so we kind of have these three choices where we can either go back and live in bondage, which is what some of them attempt to do, or we can live in wandering, which is what an entire generation of them do. They choose not to be brought in, but they live in wandering. And this is kind of that phase in your life where, where you, you just don't really take any advice from anybody that gives you any good advice. Like you've you've been brought out of your former life, but when it comes to stepping into the new life that God has for you, you never quite settle into the new life that God has for you. You just wander like the children of Israel. And, and you may be one of those people that's here today that you've been brought out, but you've stopped short of then being brought in to the fullness of the life that God has for you. And I think the question is what keeps you from being brought in? We saw in the life of Moses, it, it was his frustration and his, his feeling of having to take the responsibility on himself. You can never bring yourself into the promised land. You can never bring yourself into the life that God has for you, but, but you can participate in the process that God has to get you there. You can participate in that process. And so for Moses, it, it was this idea of, of frustration and the weight of responsibility, but, but for these children of Israel, for, for, for this generation, it began with their unbelief. They simply did not believe that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19, it says, So we see that they were not able to enter the promised land because of their unbelief. See, I think these spies and the people who kind of took their side would disagree with that assessment. They would say, no, it wasn't about our unbelief. It was about our assessment of the situation. It was about the fact that we could see giants right before us. It was about the fact that we could see a, an angry group of people that could easily take us out. These were the circumstances, but, but God says in his word, it wasn't about the circumstances. It was about your unbelief because you did not believe that I could bring you past those circumstances. It wasn't about the walls or the giants or the land. It was about your unbelief, but what we have to remember is that if God promised it, he will do it. That so often when God promises something and then it doesn't happen, we blame him rather than realizing our own responsibility in it. Secondly, it was their intimidation. They, these spies were intimidated by what they saw in that land. They, they, they had unbelief in what God could do and they were intimidated by their own ability to fight the battle that was ahead of them in order to get into the land. And then finally, it was their insecurity. The final verse says, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. See, I think what we forget sometimes is that how we see ourselves in so many ways determines our future. We, we saw ourselves as grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. Isn't it interesting that insecurity will give you a false view Of yourself, but it will also give you an assumption of what you think other people think of you. Like insecurity will cause you to constantly be assessing what other people think of you, which you have absolutely no way of knowing. But it will cause you to think that you have a firm understanding of what other people think about the choices that you're making. What other people think about your ability to walk in what God has called you to walk in. What other people think about the path that you are taking. Insecurity will keep you out of your future because it shrinks your life. It shrinks your understanding of yourself. Insecurity really becomes like ammunition for your enemies, It becomes like ammunition for your enemies because they no longer have to actually think of ways to derail you. They just have to agree with the ones you've already thought of. They just have to agree with the things that you already think about yourself. They just have to agree with the insecurities that you've already allowed to creep up in your own mind. And the sad reality is that this generation of Israelites got what they believed for. They got what they believed for. They believed that they could not get into the promised land because of the obstacles in front of them, and they did not get into the promised land. And up until this point, this can feel like a pretty bummer message. Like, we've looked at two very influential groups of people who, who made the journey, but then didn't actually get into the promised land. But Numbers chapter 14, beginning of verse 22, kind of paints a contrast And it says, not one of those, this is God speaking, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times, not one of them will see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to. And his descendants will inherit it because Caleb had a different spirit. I don't know about you, but I go through seasons where, quite honestly, I need to get my spirit back. I go through seasons where I have the same spirit that would not get me to the place that God would have for me. Seasons where I'm leaning into unbelief, leaning into intimidation, leaning into insecurity, leaning into frustration. But the hope in all of this is that Caleb had a different spirit. There was an exception. There was an exception to the rule. There was a group that got in to the promised land, and it it almost would have been easier in this moment if God said, "That's it. No one's getting in. No one's going." Because if no one's going, no one has any responsibility in it. No one's going. But Caleb got in, which is proof that God does what he says he does. It's proof that the problem is not on God's promises. The problem is in the steps that we take. The problem is in what we choose to lean into. And I don't know about you, but I want to be like Caleb, whose life is proof that God does what he says he will do. I want to live the kind of life that other people look at and they say, man, I didn't think it was possible, except it is. Except God does do what he says he would do. See, sometimes it's easier to accept the idea that God just doesn't work in your life than to accept the idea that you have responsibility in that work. That you actually have responsibility in the work God wants to do in your life. It's easier to accept the idea that God doesn't do his part than the idea that maybe you weren't doing yours. And I think there's some of us in this place this morning that we need to get our spirit back. We need to get our spirit back. We need to have that different spirit. And so what was it about Caleb's spirit? What was it about him that that got him into the promised land? And I think when you look at the life of Caleb, it begins with the fact that Caleb had faith. Caleb had faith. Faith. In the face of fear, in the face of the crowd saying, we cannot do this. We cannot step into this. We cannot take this land. Caleb stood up on his own and Caleb said, no, not only can we, we must take this land. We must do what God has said he will do. Caleb had faith, but beyond just having faith, Caleb was also faithful because if you follow this story, Caleb did ultimately enter that land. But at the time of this story, Caleb was about 40 years old and it was 45 years later that Caleb took the land. And for 45 years, he was faithful. For 45 years, he was faithful. Another just interesting fact about Caleb is that Caleb all throughout scripture, the name Caleb in the original language, uh, it means dog. It means dog. And not a super exciting name to have. It's, it, you know, dogs are great, but it means dog. But since this time in history, the name Caleb has been defined as faithful. The name Caleb has been defined as, as faithful, that, that Caleb in the scriptures actually redefined the name moving forward, going from something that seemed insignificant and seemed unimportant to being something that signified faithfulness, that being something that signified actually stepping in to the promises of God. And I think it's a reminder to us that it doesn't matter how we have been defined in the past. How we ultimately live our lives is what will define how we are remembered. It's not about the definition of life we were given. It's not about the definition of our life that we maybe carry right now. It's how we live our lives that will define who we are. Caleb had faith, and he was faithful. And then Caleb had fight. Caleb had fight. He was willing to fight for the land that God gave him. If you look in Joshua chapter 14, beginning in verse six, this is where they're actually dividing up the promised land. They've taken the promised land and they're dividing it and they're giving out these different areas of the land. And remember at this moment, Caleb is 85 years old and there's this one piece of land that it's gonna require a little extra fight. Like it's already inhabited by a pretty gnarly group of people that you do not want to face. And Caleb is 85 And Joshua gives Caleb the pick of the land. Caleb has been faithful. He has had faith. He has walked through this journey. And Joshua says, you can have the pick of the land. And it says, now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked, will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord has promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old, and I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I am just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. 45 years later at the age of 85, Caleb is saying, no, still give me what God said he would give me. I am still willing to fight for what God said he would give me. I am still willing to step into the battle to have what God would give me. I do not want to settle for less. I am ready to step into the battle. And I can only imagine the the, the Caleb and and his tribe and his people, and they're coming back to him and they're saying, hey, what land are we getting? And Caleb says, you remember that land that was the hardest to get? You, You remember that land that was the hardest to conquer? You remember that land that was the most difficult? we're going to go get that. We could have had our pick of any, but we're going to go get that because that is what God promised us. And it doesn't matter that 45 years have passed. It doesn't matter that I'm getting along in years. All that matters is that God promised it. And if God promised it, I know that I still have the fight in me to get it. And so for anyone in here who feels like maybe they've lost a little bit of the fight that God put in them, you are not too old. It has not been too long. You can step into the promise that God has for you. You can step into the future that God has for you, but we cannot give in to insecurity or intimidation or fear. We have to embrace faithfulness. We have to embrace faith, and we have to be willing to fight. We have to have a different spirit. Would you bow your heads with me all across this room this morning?